You're tuning in to Tales from the Desolate Highway, your one-stop shop for the history of post-apocalyptic literature. I'm your host, Nathan Ogloff. Let's fire this bad boy up. Well, guys, it's a brand new year, and it's a brand new me. This year, make it your year. Take it by the balls. Alright, enough of that. You can tell I've been spending way too much time at home. Uh, I'm trying to sound like those people that send super positive messages, but probably don't have their shit together to begin with. Uh, as for me, well, all I'll say is, I don't do New Year's resolutions. If I want to change, I just change right there on the spot. What's been going on with me? Well, uh, I went to see some family for Christmas, but now I'm here, back at it. I've also been practicing drums, and will probably get a drum practice kit soon. Um, here's a non-post-apocalyptic thing. In Lord of the Rings Online, which by now all of you know I play, you can play as a level 1 chicken. Which means pretty much everything in that world can kill you by looking at it. But they have these two quests that I ask you to run from the Shire to Minas Tirith and Erebor. And I finally got both of them done. Everyone in that game is super proud of me. Actually, um, hear me out. Uh, Lord of the Rings is post-apocalyptic. So here's what I mean. In that world, you had these two massive kingdoms, Arnor and Gondor. One is completely gone. It's collapsed. And the other has declined heavily. There are a lot of ruins everywhere, and the elves keep talking about how their power is fading, and the few remnants of men in the north are all bitter and sort of unfriendly. And that's what post-apocalyptic is, which I'm going to call post-apoc from now on, because it's nice and convenient and short. Uh, so the idea is with post-apoc is that the past had access to something which is greater than us, and which we no longer do have, or the past had something that is now shrouded in mystery. I mean, think of the Palantirs. They were all these mysterious objects used for long-distance communication, and now they're gone. That's kind of like having telephones disappearing. Uh, so anyway, that's my rant, and why talking about Lord of the Rings is not is not diverging from post-apoc. I mean, when you have magic that is in decline. It's the idea that we had this thing in the past that was like really convenient and really helpful and really powerful and really widespread and now it's just kind of faded away. Uh, I also made myself a little computer shelf for all my computer accessories. Anywho, uh, here's this week's book, The Lost Continent, written in 1916 by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Man, that's a name if I ever heard one. Now, before I go into the book, I need to give some context for it. It was originally published under the name Beyond 30, and this just simply means Beyond the 30th Meridian, which will make sense later. Uh, it's only 101 pages, so barely a novel in my opinion, not to sound like I'm this big-time novelist, because I'm not, but you knew that. It was written at the height of World War One, and so it was heavily influenced by those events. At the time, the U.S. was isolationist and wary of being drawn into a war in Europe, and, well, we all know how that went. Um, basically, Burroughs didn't know how long the war was going to go on. I mean, initially, everyone thought it was going to be less than a year. Then it began to drag, 
just like something else that has been currently going on. Wait, I said I wasn't going to make any more COVID jokes. Moving on. So in this book, we take a stab. Uh, he takes a stab at when he thought it would end. And that was sometime before 2137, when the book takes place. The isolationist view America had stayed in place and severed all contacts with the rest of the world. The book does summarize this idea at one point with the phrase East for the East and West for the West. At this point, the Eastern Hemisphere has exhausted itself in war and Europe has reverted back to barbarism. The Americas has existed peacefully, continued to advance, and unified itself into the Pan-American Union. So from their perspective, the rest of the world is terra incognita, which just means a land that has not been mapped. We're introduced to our main character, a lieutenant of the Pan-American Navy, Jefferson Turk. He is the commander of the aero-submarine Coldwater. And I think this was before submarines... Oh no, it wasn't before submarines existed. Well, it was before like the World War II type of submarines existed. I don't think they had them in World War I. So he's really uh, going out on a limb here to think of some future submarine stuff. Anyway, the aero-submarine Coldwater which is tasked with patrolling the 30th meridian from Iceland to the Azores. So what that means is that the world east of the 30th meridian and west of the 175th meridian is no man's land for our Pan-Americans. One fateful day, the systems on the sub start to fail. It loses its anti-gravitation screen, which causes it to wallow on the surface of the ocean. Then the engines fail, leaving it adrift. Then the wireless radio goes down. They uh, are really up Shets Creek without a paddle. The crew tries to fix it all, but the provisions start running low. Turk, along with three other subordinates, Snyder, Taylor, and Delcart, go fishing. Then the cold water is repaired and leaves them. We're not exactly told why, but it's implied that Turk's second officer, Johnson, was behind the sabotage and abandonment. Why? Well, because earlier he was being in insubordinate with Turk. That's why. So he's got a grudge. That's the reason. So now they're adrift and are forced to make shore on the derelict shores of England. Ooh. This is what the title Beyond 30 means, because they're now beyond the 30th meridian. And we've now entered the post-apoc part of the novel, because even though there is civilization and stability in our part of the world, not so much in the Eastern Hemisphere. It is a land of savages. Of course... Lions descended from zoo lions, and the British royal family, which is now simply a leader of a small tribe outside of London. Man, we've come across a lot of Englands and Londons and small tribes in England after disasters have happened in this podcast so far, haven't we? Turk ends up hunting in the woods where he rescues Victory, daughter of the king, from the henchmen of Birmingham, the local strongman who killed her father. When he tries to return her to her father, he gets captured by this henchman. Now, uh, here's a little aside. I know I shouldn't be making it, but it's my podcast, so I'll do what I want. Uh, as you all know, I love heavy metal. Love it. I have a heavy metal song of the week. Love it. And there have been a lot of heavy metal bands that have come out of Birmingham. The Black Country. So we should all know this henchman, he's not to be messed with. But eventually Jefferson and Victory escape to London, and this is when Jefferson realizes World War I 
Destroyed London. Now, bear in mind, this was written during World War One, and the author thought it was going to go on and on forever. Uh, so then, they regroup with the other Americans, and everyone sails to mainland Europe. Then one of his officers, Snyder, dies for trying to take his woman. Not to be confused with uh, Zack Snyder. That's a different Snyder. And if that's not bad enough, they all get captured by the Abyssinian Empire. A new one, not that old Abyssinian Empire. This empire is a black superstate spanning all of Africa, most of Europe, and the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, this empire's level of technology was almost equivalent to what Burroughs had at the time. Not as great as Pan America, but much better than what the European savages have. Here, the empire regards whites as a lower order and takes them as slaves. Yeah, it's a reversal of fortune. Payback time, white guys. That's uh, probably what the Abyssinian Empire would have thought it would have been a... Now you're going to know how it feels. Um, eye for an eye sort of thing. That's my that's my take on it. Um, anyway, regards to the slaves, and this includes Turk, who becomes a personal servant to Belek, an Abyssinian colonel. Eventually, Turk is taken to New Gondar. Now that's Dar, D-A-R, not Gondor. That comes later by Tolkien in the 1930s and 50s. Anyway... Uh, wow, I'm surprised how much Lord of the Rings has come up in this, um, post-apocalyptic podcast. Hmm, interesting. Uh, anyway, now this place is built where Berlin used to be, and it's where the Emperor Menelik Fourteenth holds his court. He's portrayed as just an awful person, who might have been great in his heyday, but now he's just been corrupted by power. Turk has to watch powerlessly, as white slave women are offered up for the Emperor's harem, one of which happens to be victory. But, just as it seems he'll never see victory again, China attacks New Gondar. They have been advancing into Europe from the east. Turk and Victory are captured by the Chinese, but then later made honored guests once the Chinese have heard of their story. They are then taken to the site of where Moscow used to be, now where the Chinese have their base. Then by rail to Peking, where they are all married, because it was called Peking back in 1916. It wasn't Beijing until uh, later. But back in Pan America, Alvarez, one of Turk's subordinates, wants him to be rescued. For this to happen, the ban on travel to the Eastern Hemisphere has to be lifted. Well, it is, and the rescue expedition is mounted. First, they find Taylor and Delcarte, the other guys that went with Turk. Then communications between the hemispheres are reopened. Diplomatic relations are established between China and Pan America, and commerce follows from that. Turk is hailed a hero, and he makes plans to restore victory to a British throne. And everything's going to be great. It's going to be just great. You get a happy ending, and you and everyone else gets one also. Everyone gets uh, happily ever after with this book. And that's the book. Uh, it's not as well-known. It's not a well-known book, so I can't say it had a huge impact on post-apocalyptic later days. It is sort of like Princess of Mars from the Barsoom series of books he wrote, which, those, as an aside, featured John Carter, and that whole series would, like, influence so many later science fiction writers. So, uh, good on Burroughs for that. Uh, this book does reside in public domain in the U.S., so, um, if you want to use elements of it but not get sued, don't you worry there, mister. Uh, the story was originally published in All Around Magazine and was only about 57 pages at the time. Uh, it didn't appear in book form at its uh, 100 page, at 
Okay, so it didn't appear in book form at the 108 pages until 1955, uh, five years after Burroughs died. Now, in 1957, it was published as a two-parter with his other short story, Man Eater. In 1963, it was published as The Lost Continent, the title we have right now. And it stayed that way until 2001, when Bison Books republished it under the original title. When I say title right now, I just meant, like, the title of the podcast, the one I rolled with. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so that's this week's book, The Lost Continent by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Do I recommend it? Eh, sure, why not? Go ahead and pick yourself up a coffee. A, a coffee. A coffee. If anything, do it for the sake of... Do it for the sake of me. Yeah. Now, before I go, uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from the novel. It's uh, just an excerpt I found online, so it's going to be uh, a little short and sweet, and I'm kind of entering it in the middle of a, a story passage. Uh, but it's something I thought I'd try out as, uh, I do believe, a first for this podcast. All right, here I go. I've done it a thousand times, but I did not dare submerge the cold water for fear that it would remain submerged to the end of time, a condition far from conducive to the longevity of commander or crew. Most of my officers were older men than I. John Alvarez, my first officer, is twenty years my senior. He stood at my side on the bridge as the ship glided closer and closer to those stupendous waves. He watched my every move, but he was by far too fine an officer and gentleman to embarrass me by either comment or suggestion. When I saw that we would soon touch, I ordered the ship brought around broadside to the wind, and there we hovered a moment until a huge wave reached up and seized us upon its crest, and then I gave the order that suddenly reversed the screening force and let us into the ocean. Down into the trough we went, wallowing like the carcass of a dead whale, and then began to and then began the fight with rudder and propellers to force the cold water back into the teeth of the gate and drive her on. Next time on Tales from the Desolate Highway, I talk about Theodore Savage. What's it going to be about? I have no idea. I'm going to make this one our secret mystery novel to both you and me. You've been listening to another episode of Tales from the Desolate Highway. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at UnusualAuthor and Instagram at unconventional author. As always, thanks for tuning in.